We're operating in a worldview and a theology. We're like, no, no, no. Your relationship with your matters. Your relationship with your soul matters. There's this place as an artist where everyone else is running for cover from the rain. You want to climb the church steeple and you want to get struck by lightning. At the end of the day, you don't get a medal for being in pain and not taking anything. All you do is hurt everyone around you. John kind of thinks for a moment and he goes, This is the thing that I would want every young man to know. Hey guys, welcome back to the Ansons podcast. Undoubtedly the best part of your day that includes Sam and I. We have an interview today with Jeff Vanderstelt. Jeff is kind of a church visionary. Um, he spent a long time developing resources to help in the organization and the sustentation of communities and churches. And I've actually been a member of some communities that are shaped by his work. So I was pretty pumped to finally sit down and talk with him. You know, for me, this was actually kind of a difficult podcast to record, partly because of being a part of a personally a culture where language is very important. And a lot of the typical religious language has been kind of intentionally, it's not phased out, but just worked around or helped to soften because of how overly religious it sounds. And uh, there are people that try to reclaim some of those words. I think that's a good thing to do, but there is a lot of that in this podcast, um, to be fair. There are good things about that, and there are bad things about that. Yeah, so it's jargon intense, definitely, but encourage you to stick with it. Jeff's thoughts on vulnerability, covenantal community, walking out of life with God are pretty phenomenal. And here at Anson's, we don't talk very often about living in a church, but given that that begins with operating as a community uh, in your union with Jesus, there's really some great stuff here. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, really great to finally have an opportunity to connect with you. Actually, over the past three years or so, Sam and I have both been members of communities that are either modeled directly on SOMA or on some of your other resources. So it just feels uh, like a great opportunity to finally have some questions to ask you uh, about the formation of a community and a missional community. I think where we actually just want to jump right in is a lot of your work is built on this thing in the church called the missional community. Would you just start by defining what is a missional community? The quick way to define it is we would say a missional community is a family of servant missionaries sent as disciples who make disciples. And to explain that, it would be a people who love one another like family, because Jesus said it's by our love from one another that they'll know that you're my disciples. And uh, one of our primary identities is children of God. So we love one another like family. In the kind of the everyday stuff of life, we also serve other people in tangible ways so people can see the impact of the gospel in, in actual visible impact. Uh, so there's family of servant missionaries, and we believe as missionaries we're sent together to make disciples of Jesus who also can make disciples of Jesus themselves. So the, those three identity statements, family, servant, and missionaries, are really key for how we would shape what a community is all about. And we derive those three identity statements, family, servant, and missionary, from our baptism, baptized in the name of the Father, 
family, baptized in the name of the Son. He's our king, so we're his servants, baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, who empowers and sends us to be missionaries. So it really is a baptismal identity that we're working out in community together. You could just drop the mic right now, actually. Um, (laughs) You know, you've really, in that response, kind of begun to answer some of these other questions. But what are some of the core differences between a functioning missional community and just a group of people with some shared interests? Like, what's the difference between a missional community and just a social group or a social network? Well, I think at the heart of a social network or social group is that there's something that draws you together that is probably shifting, um, unstable, temporary in nature. So it could be like a career or an interest, like we all love to to play sports or climb or whatever. And those are all great things, of course, but they're transitory things in, in a sense, because you're going to grow out of them or you're going to grow into new interest or new kinds of uh, focuses in your life as you grow through stages. I think the thing of a missional community is that you're brought together for something that is eternal. Uh, and that is, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an eternal reality that will never go away. Uh, we are servants of Jesus. The kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom. And so there's this there's a sense that we're devoted to something even more than just the temporary and even more than just our own self-interest. We're devoted to loving one another because we have a heavenly father. We're devoted to serving others because we have a king who's establishing his kingdom. And we're devoted to being a people who have the same spirit. We have one spirit. And you know, I could go hang out with coworkers and friends and not necessarily have that one father, one Lord, one spirit identity. But uh, I have that in a missional community because these are people who share the same father, share the same king, share the same empowering spirit. And so there's something far more profound about that kind of relationship than primarily just hanging out with some friends or colleagues. And those are good things to do, but those aren't the types of things that are by nature eternal. They can be, but in and of themselves, they aren't unless they have something bigger like the kingdom of God calling us together. So I'd say that's a big difference. Uh, It's eternal versus temporary. It's deeper. It's much more profound in nature. uh, And therefore, uh, the potential impact is remarkable if we really, really embrace it. To say that the difference is huge uh, feels appropriate when one is kind of focused on the mundane and the other is the profound. When I think about most young guys, I know there is this longing for connection and community, and we're we're very much plugged into these digital and social spaces, and yet there's this longing on a communal level that we are all like able to say that we want these things. We want community. We want friends. And then you start laying down some of those like, yes, sports are good, but... Like if these truths are truth, then certain things have to be played out. I think that Blaine and I have both experienced wrestling with actually how difficult that that can be when you throw down things like serving each other and loving each other. And family is a messy thing, <laughs> um, as we all know. Um, there's almost this thing that kind of evokes in me of, wait, I wanted community to almost be easy. Like I want it to be profound. Those, those feel like weak muscles, if that makes sense. And so there's almost this thing that it kind of evokes in me of like, it, what's the deeper why? Like why press in mm-hmm. to a community like that that can actually be super uncomfortable at first? Mm-hmm. 
the b- bigger why is the thing that you actually want is the thing you're also most afraid of. I hear regularly the the kind of the feedback of frustration in my own church is, man, I wish we had deeper relationships. I wish we had a greater commitment. I wish people really knew me. I wish, I mean, there's all these different things that we say we wish, and yet yep. we're not really willing to step into the reality of what that cost. You know, it's the it's the rich young ruler who wants to follow Jesus but doesn't want to leave the, what he has to to actually go for what he really wants. And I think for many people, the cost of what they say they want, and I think they deeply want it. I think it's embedded in them by the very nature that they're image bearers of God, that God put in them the very things they long for. And yet to get to it requires a death. That's the heart of the kingdom, right? To, if you really want to live, you must die. If you really want to save yourself, you must lose yourself. This It's this idea of, I've, I've, I've got to actually be willing to to suffer to find real life. And that's the biggest miss for most people is they actually want something profound in a very cheap way. It's like working out physically. You don't get in better shape without going through the pain of getting in better shape. But when you've gone through the pain, you're glad you did because you feel better. You, you feel the health that it produces. The same is true in, in terms of relationships and spirituality, that there really is a genuine cost that leads to a far better experience. And I'm, I'm convinced, especially uh, around with the, the social media uh, opportunities we have in, uh, in front of us is that we're all kind of going after something we really long for. And it's kind of like, it's like social pornography, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's promising you something it never delivers on. And so you spend more and more hours looking for it, but you keep ending up feeling more empty uh, because it never can give you what it says it will. And the only way you get that is by really being with people, actually getting to know each other, spending time with each other, sacrificing for one another. That I was meeting with a young millennial uh, recently who just came out of a really tough relationship, and she said, "Like I feel like we none of us know how to love people." I said, "It's because what I hear when you say love is um, I'm looking for somebody who satisfies me." And I said, the problem is love isn't about you being satisfied. Love is about you being sacrificial. And in sacrificing, you find genuine life because at the heart of love is the cross. Jesus defined what love is. It's to give up your life for another. And at the heart of a missional community, it's learning how to give up your life for others. And I, I don't think you can experience that in most of the things people are chasing after. In many ways, you were just answering this question, but it feels really true that in order uh, to stay in a missional community, in order to jump in and take those sacrificial steps, you have to have a pretty deep understanding of the consequences of the work of Jesus for you. At the same time, a missional community or a community of any kind is often a site where you can actually begin to learn how the work of Jesus influences you. And so it feels like you you need to enter in order to understand why to enter. But hmm. at the beginning, you need at least some understanding of how the death of Jesus in your place actually both frees and then compels you into a community. Is Is there like a core set of things that a person needs to understand about the work of Jesus before they're equipped to participate as a missional community? Or can all of those things be learned in real time in a communal setting? 
I, I'm convinced that they can't be learned apart from community. Uh, I, I'm more and more convinced that the gospel is good news to a people, not to an individual. And I'm not saying it doesn't affect me individually. I'm just saying that the realities of the gospel don't get to be fully known until I'm in community. Like I, It's not just about my individual uh, justification, sanctification, you know, future glorification. It's about a people being formed together. And um, the thing I love about missional community is when I have to be with a people long enough, my need for the gospel shows up. My, my, my fears, my insecurities, my selfishness, my pride, all those things that the gospel really does address and save me from, they don't get to be realized in isolation. All those deep-seated, broken parts of my, my internal being don't show up unless I'm in community. <laughs> that's, that's when they show up, and it's in the community that I come to realize how desperately I need the gospel, and it's also the community that then is the people who become the gospel proclaimers to my brokenness. And so it's, it, it's not an either-or. I think it's a both-and. Now, I do believe that you're going to have to have some people who do know and believe the gospel enough to lead others to see their need for it, and then to be able to speak the gospel effectively into those needs as they become more and more apparent. Uh, my concern about most social media is that you can present a kind of perfect personification of yourself to the world, and no one really sees the real brokenness because you can keep changing your image online, either because the pictures you always choose to put in front of everybody are better than your real world, or because you tell a different story about yourself than you want people to really know. But when you're up close and personal with people long enough, you just can't maintain the image anymore. And the beauty of that is that everybody doesn't really want to have to maintain the image. Everybody actually wants to be known and known as broken and then actually loved and accepted and then possibly led towards transformation. And the beauty is if you know the gospel, believe the gospel, and are willing to live in community long enough, you'll actually get to experience the profound effects that the gospel has on your everyday life, not just your future eternity, but your present transformation that the gospel brings about. Yeah, Jeff, I'm glad you're you're going that direction because I'm struck in some of the language we're using right now that I've experienced it in my own life, the selfishness that gets evoked. When we're, we're operating as our little islands, we can kind of think that we've got our lives together and things are working pretty well for us. And then whether it's a relationship, a marriage, a partnership, a community, like all the cracks in the system start to show up really fast. And we've used these, these words of like serving each other and loving each other. And there's some difficulty to it. And there's part of me that nods and goes like really good things are worth fighting for and take work. Things just don't shouldn't shouldn't come easy that are of value. Um, that's not the way the world actually works. It may be the way that our our fast food nation is kind of set up to give us things. But I can also see how there's this part of me that like this question pops up and goes, when and what is like good fruit of a healthy community? Because I could see people using some of those same words of like, well, you're just kind of like press in and lose some of that selfishness and learn how to serve. I, I could see that being um, kind of manipulative mm -hmm. if it's actually an unhealthy community. And so I'm wondering what you would name as like, if the fruit is X, Y, and Z, and you were kind of beginning to point towards that, then the community is doing what it's supposed to and is healthy. Mm -hmm. And then maybe what the opposite could be if it's like, well, you know, if you hang out with your buddies and it's just this, then you might want something more. 
Yeah, well, I, I think the first two words that come to mind is grace and truth, uh, that Jesus came full of grace and truth, and the community that he keep formed had grace for people to fail like Peter, who could deny him three times and still be welcomed right back in and even put in a position of leadership. But then truth in that Jesus was willing to say, you're going you're gonna to fall, and that's, that's a problem. And I'm praying that Satan wouldn't sift you, you know, that, that you'll make it through. Or he can speak to Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the thing, the, in your mind the things of God, but the things of man. Like he could, he could speak truthfully to how they mistreated kids or how they, they had disdain for the sinner or the tax collector. And they, they had no room for the grace of God. So he spoke truthfully about their ungraciousness. And then he provided grace to the, the truth that was applied. And so there was this beautiful place to become. Uh, I like to call it hospitality. It's a space to be as I am today with the possibility of becoming what God intends me to become tomorrow. And so this, this idea that we're a hospitable place where people find the grace to be as broken as we are, as messy as we are, and then the truth to help us in the gospel become what we're meant to be. And so it's that space for grace and truth to happen. And I think the fruit of it is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's, the, it's, this, it's this kind of community that has it's just beaming with the life of the Spirit of God. And you know, one of the things you said is that this sounds messy, and I would say Actually, if it's messy, it's probably missional. And if it's not messy, it's mm. probably being controlled by the flesh. It's probably, it's probably something we're trying to manufacture. And that's when people get abused or hurt or manipulated or controlled because we want the thing that we've created to resemble a, an eschatological future that only Jesus can bring about, this like perfect reality of life. And so anybody that messes it up, we have to get rid of them. Instead of saying, no, we live in the in the in-between of the already not yet reality of the kingdom. And so we're on the way of becoming. And I think that space between Jesus' first coming and his second coming is the space that we call hospitality. It's the place where people get to be and they're moving towards becoming. It's sanctification leading towards glorification. And so the fruit of that community will be the fruit of the Spirit. I'd love to ask some questions about kind of the specifics of a young missional community in its early stages, which I mean, actually happens to be what Sam and I are members of right now, and just kind of in the formation of a missional community as the relationships are being established, as the vision is being shared. One of the things that uh, I'm just curious about are, what are the major things you would warn a young missional community to avoid? Like, are there certain things that will either stymie a community's growth or outright kill it if you're not aware that they're operating? I would say, I'll say it in a a little bit more positive way. I would say you've got to start with the gospel at the center. So if people don't have a, a robust view of the gospel of Jesus Christ being sufficient enough to save them past, present, and future, meaning they, they've been saved from the penalty of sin, so there's, they're being set free from guilt, shame, and fear. But they're also being saved presently. Uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about us being saved by the gospel. The 
present power of God for salvation because it's the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ's power that we have right now by His Spirit to have power over sin today, and that it's a future reality, that we will be saved. So we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin. There's a future hope. So I, I would want to establish them really strongly in that because what will kill a community is a lack of the gospel, a, a legalism, a, a missional moralism. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we we exchange for the gospel, and even the very good work of a missional community can become the replacement of the gospel. And so that's got to be at the heart and center, and everything that fights against that will destroy your community. Uh, so whatever ever becomes the replacement of the gospel is what you got to watch out for. Even community itself has become a replacement gospel for many people. Another thing I'd say you have to watch out for is people acting like they know each other, but they really don't. And so one of the very first things I put into place when I started a new mission community is we have everyone share their story. We take the time to really get to know who the person is sitting across the table or across the room so that at some point we all know each other's stories well enough to know the potential areas where we're going to fail to believe the gospel, where we're going to believe another storyline because of the way we were brought up or the abuse that was done to us or the lack of uh, the neglect of care or emotional warmth that we've experienced in our life. Those become for us a replacement story to the better narrative of the gospel. And so when we get back to you asking me, how would you define a missional community? Well, when I said family, if we don't redefine family in accordance with God the Father loving us through the expression of the Son dying for us, now giving us the spirit that enables us to call God our daddy, Abba, Father, and then we get a revision of Father because many of our earthly fathers are broken, so we need a picture of Father that is Jesus, where he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, if we don't redefine that narrative of family, then, then saying let's love one another like family doesn't work. And so all of our past false storylines or broken storylines will kill a community if they don't get redeemed by the better story of God's redemptive work in Christ Jesus. So we need not only the gospel, but we need to know each other's stories, and then we need to help each other's stories get redeemed by the bigger story of God's redemptive plan. That feels spot on. When you say things like family, I think most people probably think of maybe Thanksgiving every other year, <laughs> and there's this the kind of, you know, the this clenchage of like, ooh, I don't want to, like, I don't do that. That sounds, I know my family. You don't know my family. So there is this need to redeem language. And I also feel that need in myself and my personal story for language that can sound legalistic or overly biblical or, or overly religious. Um, yes. And yet to try and tweak language for each generation and each, I mean, if it was just a decade or a century, we would be at such a new iteration that we wouldn't really be sure what we were talking about anymore. And yet I know I, in myself and as the people around the table are learning to know that of me, um, they can see that that pullback and then can press in and go, you know, Sam, actually when you hear missionary, why is it that all of a sudden you think of Africa? Why, right. why are you not thinking of your community and your neighbors? Um, and I, I personally love that fruit of knowing each other's stories because how many conversations have I had at churches over the years where someone does the classic, oh, how are you doing? Well, yeah, I'll pray for you. And, and then you know, kind of, you're on your way and you're like, yes. you don't really know me. You don't really know what I'm wrestling with. And yes. and there's a vapidness there that, I, yeah, I think you're just naming, I would want, and I think all of us would want to, like, to be known and to be held. Like I'm, I'm right back to 
held in the place where you are and pulled in the place you could be. Like I'm, I'm just finding myself sitting in that as a really, really good thing. Mm. You know, another thing that will kill community, and this again goes back to how you define family, um, is gossip and slander. It's not having each other's backs. It's not speaking face-to-face to one another. Uh, it's a principle I put in place in every community I started is we don't talk about each other. We talk to each other. The only time we talk about each other is if we're building each other up in someone else's presence. And when you have that kind of safety, then you're willing to tell your story and be known because you know they're not going to go in another room and talk about you. They're going to know you and face-to-face speak to you. And again, that comes back to, to family. If you grew up in a family where you didn't feel safe, then when you get into a community and you learn that most people are going to turn on you behind your back, then you're never going to experience the kind of community that you see in Jesus's discipleship where he's willing to lay down his life for his friends. We have to almost redefine community. We have to redefine family in accordance with the life of Christ with his disciples and with all the corrective epistles where the Apostle Paul or James or Peter or others have to say, no, you've got it wrong. Let's let's get back to what God always intended for his people. So there's got to be a, a, a kind of a fierce commitment to love one another like that. Of course, again, with grace, but that truth of saying, we want to be a people who don't tear each other down, but rather build each other up. But we will speak each, to each other to the face and do it in love and help each other grow. So many people feel so unsafe in community because they've experienced so many relationships turn on them. And that's still going to happen in a missional community, but then you got to have a community that says, okay, let's get back at the table and let's get reconciled because we don't let people just walk away. This is family. Family can't just reject each other. Family is together forever. So let's work this out. Yeah. There's such a blend of almost the confidentiality agreement of a counselor's office and the commitment of a family member to love you kind of all wrapped up into one Mm -hmm. of your looking someone in the eye. I'm only speaking of you or about you when you are here. We had one family join our mission community and after many, many months when we really got to know them, they said, we were so afraid for you to finally get to know us because we were thinking that once you found out what we were like, you would ask us to leave. I mean, is there not some fear in all of us that might, like, if if only you knew. That's right. Then I, I think know. it's in all of us. And I think it's one of the schemes of the world to tell you you're better off putting your best face forward. And it's one of the schemes of the evil one to keep accusing you and reminding you of your sin in such a way that you don't think you're ever going to be loved or accepted. And he's got so many people tricked into believing the best life you can live is a life of hiddenness, like Adam and Eve, instead of coming out of hiding and experiencing the beauty that the gospel can bring forth by making making us able to be just naked and unashamed because of Christ. As you were talking, some conversations were coming to mind for me with young friends and at a similar age involved in different churches. And there's this related point that is really interesting where I don't know how many times I've had someone just confess to me in a conversation like, yeah, I'm in a church and I am in a community, but they're just kind of irritating or like the people in my mission of community is like, we don't feel like friends. Like we don't, it, it doesn't feel like, like there's any traction. And I think in many ways that the model of the family is the only unit that can accommodate that kind of difference. Mm-hmm. But I would want to ask people are in a missional community together and they don't feel like friends. Is that important 
Or is friendship something that happens almost as a byproduct of emphasizing other identities? I think friendship is a byproduct of something much bigger. The way, I, reason why I would say that is because Jesus at one point calls his disciples friends, but if you look at who the group is, you've got a zealot and a tax collector together who are enemies in that context. You've got fishermen uh, who are not going to find themselves hanging out with half of the group. You've got women coming out of prostitution. I mean, you, it's it's a mixed bag. You, you eventually got some religious leaders that convert, you know, and, and just start to follow Jesus. So it's just this crazy mix of relationships that would never be together for any other reason than Jesus. And I, I think if Jesus isn't the center of the community, then yeah, we'll find ourselves not becoming friends. But if Jesus is the center and we share our stories with one another about how Jesus is changing our lives, and that's when I have people tell their stories, it's not just tell me your story, it's tell me your story about Jesus. Tell me about how he changed you, how he's working in you, what he's doing. Because then as we start to see that we love the same Jesus and he's changing all of us together, then there's a deeper friendship than the world knows. Because the world tends to know friendship as you like the things I like, you do the things I do, which is just selfishness ultimately, right? It's like, I want to find someone like me so that I can be affirmed in who I am versus I'm going to actually learn how someone loves someone unlike me so I can learn how to affirm God in all of his full expression of humanity, uh, because ultimately this is about him. And if you're married, you know this to be true. You, you married someone who you thought was your best friend, and then they became your best friend if you stayed with them long enough. Probably at the beginning, you were infatuated. Probably in the beginning, there were things you liked about them that made you feel good about yourself. But the longer you are married, the more you realize, this isn't just somebody I'm with so I feel better. This is someone who I'm with who's making me a better me because I'm learning how to love someone unlike me. In, in this relationship. And the vow of lifelong commitment forced me to learn how to actually become a friend. And I think most people don't really know genuine friendship because they're just liking somebody like themselves, which is just another way of loving yourself. And I think when you can learn how to love people unlike you, now you're getting at the heart of genuine friendship, which is learning how to give up yourself for the sake of the other. Speaking of the redemption of language, and then also you know, the need to begin engaging with uh, some of the complex equipment of our life in Jesus, missional community being one. I would also ask, how would you define discipleship? Yeah, the way that I define discipleship is leading people to increasingly submit all of life to their empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. I know that's a big definition, but the reason why I say it that way is it's leading people. So I think there's in discipleship, you're directing people to somebody other than yourself. You're leading them to Jesus. So you're leading people to increasingly submit. You see Jesus' disciples at the end of their time with them, he's going to ascend into heaven, and they're still doubting. It says they worshiped him, but some still doubted. So there's this ongoing nature to discipleship. It's not something you start and finish. It's something you continue in until you die or Jesus returns. So you're leading people to increasingly submit all of life. It's an all of life thing. It's not learning a curriculum. It's learning how to submit all of your life increasingly to Jesus's empowering presence. He said, I'll be with you to the end of the age. So you're learning how to invite him into all of life so you have his power to live a new life and his lordship. So it's not just come empower me. It's I submit to you. It's leading people to increasingly do that with all of life. That's what I think discipleship is. In listening to this conversation, many of my friends would be increasingly feeling a longing of, 
that sounds remarkable to have those kinds of relationships and to be around those kinds of people who would understand what discipleship was, or at least be committed to learning and be able to walk it out together. But I'm really alone right now. And I just wonder if a person even listening to this conversation is in a situation where they might be kind of connected to unbodied people, but they have maybe a few friends who know Jesus. Are there things that they could do to begin introducing a framework of discipleship into some of their even friendships or relationships with people who were walking with God? I'm convinced there's a remnant everywhere. And uh, so I think you pray, God, would you reveal to me some people who have a a similar passion and like-mindedness to see this kind of thing started? And it could just be two or three. It doesn't need to be a lot. Uh, But then to say, okay, what, what if we devoted ourselves to Christ together and to his word and then to obeying it together in community and then living out these identities of loving like family and then inviting others into it gradually as we learn how to do it ourselves, I'm, I'm convinced you'll grow just simply by loving one another well. It takes just a few to look each other in the eye and say, are you willing to do this? You know, through the good, through the bad. I mean, I'd call it a covenant community. When, when a husband and wife walk down the aisle and they say, I do, they're making a commitment to one another. And I think if you are willing to make a commitment to a few people to say, we're in this, let's love one another, let's embrace Christ together, let's learn how to obey his commands together, let's do this not just once a week, but let's do this daily as we encourage each other. And I think if a few will do that, it will become something better than you could have ever imagined. It'll hurt like crazy, though. I mean, it's, like Jesus promised we would suffer for following him. And so you have to embrace that side of it, too. But I'd say just pray for a few. It doesn't need to be a lot. It can just be a couple to start with. And in that starting, um, what are some of the things that you would say are helpful in forming a rhythm to a community? Things that you've mentioned hearing each other's stories. There's an, an outworking of the gospel. And there's, a, there's all these, these concepts that I'd love for you to kind of flesh out in, in some potential practical ways. If you were starting or just joining or your community's young, what are some things that you'd go okay, these are, these are some things that you're going to want to think about seriously, and these are some things for further down the road when you have more of a rhythm together. I usually start with saying you've got to have some, some qualified leadership or at least some people that, you know, they get the gospel, they're ready to start taking a little bit of leadership in calling some people together. And then you've got to have a clarified mission. Like, okay, we can't just be about ourselves. So is there some people God might be calling us to reach? Not just us, but somebody else. And I think that's one of the biggest problems of most communities. They become only inward focused, and therefore they become codependent eventually. Versus they're an interdependent community committed to another people, uh, whether it's neighbors or coworkers or friends that don't know Jesus. But there's got to be the outworking of mission. Jesus uh, has called us and sent us. So some kind of clarified mission. And, it, and that can change continually because God is closing and opening doors all the time in our lives. So that would be the second. And then a group of people, just like I said, that will covenant together. Then make sure they know the gospel well enough and their stories well enough to learn how to apply it. And then the next thing I would say is identify normal rhythms of life that you're going to start to practice together, eating together. How often are we going to eat together once a week? Are we going to eat with some friends who don't know Jesus regularly? Are we going to uh, open the table up and invite friends in over? Are we going to take people out to dinner? Like, How will our, our life uh, around the table uh, be shaped? Because 
I'm convinced that the table is the, is like the beginning and the end of the story. You know, at the beginning, you eat of the fruit of the tree and you die. At the end, you get to eat of the fruit of life forever. And so in the Bible story, you've got meals bookending the very narrative of God's redemptive plan. And, I, and then the very center of it is the, the Passover meal becoming the Lord's Supper. There's this remembrance around the table that I think God wants his people to regularly engage in. So I would probably have a conversation. When are we going to eat together? When are we going to actually be like a family around the table? And when are we going to play together? What kinds of activities will we enjoy doing? And what, what kinds of serving will we do to, to show the kingdom of God? And I would just start walking through what might a week or a month in the life of our community look like if we were really to embrace our identity as a family, our identity as servants, our identity as missionaries, and identify rhythms, normal rhythms of life that will happen often, not, hey, we're going to do a service project, but rather, how are we going to get in kind of the, the daily or weekly rhythm of a people together uh, in how we eat, how we rest, how we celebrate, how we reflect, how we re- recreate? I mean, all these rhythms of life that people engage in, but they just do it all alone or they do it disjointed. So I would just figure out what are those rhythms, covenant together around those for a season, start practicing life together in normal everyday stuff, and you'll probably have plenty to do just with that alone, and that'll lead to many, many other things eventually. Yeah, I'm so struck by just all of the different rhythms that we create in our own lives and then trying to uh, bring that together, and I experienced it personally about a year and a half ago as we began doing meals and then uh, gathering together on a fire pit and then learning how to play together and all of that. I'm wondering, and maybe it's, uh, I'm going to answer my own question in asking it, but for those members of the family that may not be the leaders of the group, do you see an encouragement for people to step in when they see needs? If it's, yeah, you know, actually we aren't playing together. Um, why don't we do this? Or, or is there some place of waiting for those that are the mature or those that have been apart longer to shepherd better? And maybe there's something that's youngness that's trying to jump out and offer different things. Um, I'm, I'm just struck by that. I think if you have the ability to see it, then you have responsibility to do something about it. So mm-hmm. in my own household, I've, I've got now a 15-year-old daughter, a 12-year-old son, a 10-year-old daughter. But even as early as like four or five, you know, three, four, five, six in my household, if my kids saw something that was wrong in our household and, and I created an environment where I wanted them to feel, always feel the freedom to share what they saw that was broken. And sometimes that was me. You know, they would say, Dad, that wasn't very nice what you just said. And they would, you know, I tried to create a place of grace where they could correct me. Because if, if we don't build that into our community, then our kids won't grow up with a courage to speak the gospel or speak truth and love to people. And so I would say to all leaders listening, it's your job to create a safe environment where younger, immature believers grow up and feeling the freedom to confront, to correct, to bring uh, what they believe is truth to bear on a situation. And a lot of times they see things that we don't because we're so steeped in a way of living that there's brokenness that's built into our very structures that we can't see, but a younger generation might be able to see it better than us. So I think you got to create a grace-filled culture that can speak truthfully to one another. And I tell people, if you can see it, it's probably because God has enabled you to see something we need. So if you come to me and say, man, it doesn't really feel like we're really listening well to each other around here. That's probably true then. Like, let's talk about that. And how might we do a better job? What ideas do you have? And so I'd say, if you're listening and you're going, man, I wish our community was more like this. Don't just discount yourself. It's very possible God is stirring in you something that he wants to be true in his church or in the group you're in. And 
Paul's pretty clear in Ephesians. Every part of the body is necessary for building up the entire body. And when each part is doing its part, we all grow up in a maturity. So there's not a disposable part of the body in the church. No one's disposable. No one's the Everyone is necessary. Yeah, everyone's necessary. We've got to start to believe that about ourselves. Yeah, yeah. that's really good. I thank God I'm not the appendix. <laughs> <laughs> Though I will say there are sometimes people who are like an appendix in the church. And what I mean by that is there's bitterness or just hurt that they're spewing, and we need to love them well enough to kind of get that healed and, and cleansed and even changed inside of them so that what can come out of them is life-giving. And so that does happen, but it doesn't have to stay that way. I want to close by uh, asking you about, there's a line that comes up every once in a while in your writing, especially in reference to service, and it's very simple and very provocative. And it just goes, we fail if we do not give them Jesus. What do you mean? Yeah, well, I, I've seen a, a lot of movement towards social justice and, and even doing a lot of great justice and mercy works. And yet the potential is that people will believe that we're doing the works we do because we're trying to be good. So it's because of moralism or because we believe that apart from God, we just are good. And I remember hearing a story of a guy who had a friend, uh, he owned a company and, and one of his employees came to faith in Jesus over the weekend at some kind of evangelistic crusade. And he went to work Monday and he told his boss he could just couldn't contain it. And his boss said, man, I'm so excited. I've been praying for you for so long that you would come to faith in Jesus. And the employee was dumbfounded and a, and a little bit perturbed. He said, are you kidding me? you're a Christian? And he said, yes. And the employee responded, you're almost the reason I didn't come to faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the boss was like, what are you talking about? He said, you, well, because you're such a great boss and such a great guy and you did such good work and you treat your employees so well. And I always thought it was just because you were good in and of yourself. I had no idea it was because of Jesus. And so I figured if you could do it without Jesus, I could do it without Jesus. I wish you would have told me it was because of Jesus that you were this kind of person. And I, my concern is that we can lead people further away from Jesus with good deeds because we fail to credit Jesus as the reason and the power for which we do those good deeds. And I think there's a world potentially running towards a moralistic deism or even a, not even a deism, just moralism, because we're not telling them it's because of Jesus that we do what we do. And we have got to stop robbing Jesus of his glory by taking it on ourselves as though we are the reason it gets done instead of he's the reason. Jeff, thank you for spending some of the today with us. We really appreciate it. It's good to be with you guys. If our listeners are intrigued by maybe some of the the things we've been talking about, I know that there's ways that they can get plugged into their own worlds, but if they're particularly intrigued by some of your network, where would they go to find out a little bit more? Well, uh, saturatetheworld.com is a good website that contains a lot of our training, uh, a lot of our the information. So saturatetheworld.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Jeff Vanderstelt, basically at Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, so those are some of the ways. Um, I've written a couple books. One's called Saturate being disciples of Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. And the other one is called Gospel Fluency, speaking the truths of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life. So those would be some resources. Awesome, guys. Definitely check it out. Thanks again, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. You need to be sure to subscribe now and follow us on social media under Ann Sons Magazine. And of course, for articles and films, check out annsonsmagazine.com.